Good morning. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church. My name is Ernie Benoit. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Students, welcome back to campus. All right. We're excited. If you're new to Mercy Hill Church, the kind of church we want to be is a church that loves the city and the campus. Uh, we know there's lots of churches that love the city, but they don't love the campus. And there's lots of ministries that love the campus, but they don't love the city. We want to be a church that does both of those things really well. In fact, we're so excited for you college students to be back. Like you're, you're one of the reasons, you are the reason we came to Cincinnati to start this church is because we felt like a church like that needed to exist in Cincinnati. And if it's your first time here, we're so thankful that you're here and you're a part of it. Like this is a place we really do want to be ordinary people transformed by the mercy of God. There's nothing special about me. Uh, there's something very special about our God that we follow, and he does amazing transformational things in our lives. And those are the kind of people we want to be as a church, ordinary people transformed by the mercy of God. And I am really fired up to see people get in this tank and get baptized and for you to hear that story. Are you excited for that, Mercy Hill Church? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I hope you're excited, man. I'm really excited. Fall is almost around the corner. In fact, for us, it feels like it is because next week we'll send our kids back to school. Uh, I'm a father. I have three kids, a son who's nine, a daughter who's six, another daughter who's three. So we're sending two kids for the first time to school full time. And what that means is this, that we're going to have a happy mom and a sad mom all at the same moment. All right. I didn't think that was a real thing, and it was like last year, we were going to school, and I was watching one of our friends drop off all their kids. I was like, man, Mary must be really excited for this moment. Like, she's finally, like, eight years, she's going to have the house to herself, she's going to be able to do things that she wants to do. Eight years, it's finally there, and I'm like, I mean, she, and we saw her, like, pumping her fist and, like, honking the horn, and I was like, don't you think, and Laura was like, no, she's going to pull around the corner and weep, and I was like... <laughs> And I was like, no way. We saw Mary later. She's weeping, you know. Like, she's like, yeah, I cried my eyes out. It's something, something very delicate and special about a mom's heart. But what also tells us that's fall in the Benoit family is sports start kicking up. All right? So every night I feel like I'm on a different sports field. My son plays football or baseball. He plays every sport he can play. My, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, plays soccer. Really, she kind of majors in the playing uh, and in minors in the soccer part, you know. <laughs> In fact, I look at soccer coaches, some of the most six-year-old female soccer coaches, girl soccer coaches are some of those patient men and women I've ever met in my entire life because I'm very certain that half of them don't even understand what they're doing out there. But my daughter, like, I love watching her play, not because she's the best soccer player out there. In fact, she rarely kicks the ball, um, but because she's the star of the show because of what she does in playing soccer, you know? In fact, last time I saw her playing, she started doing this on her hand. She was going, and then she would run really fast, and then she'd growl at people. And I'm like, Ella, what are you doing? She goes, I'm on beast mode right now. And I'm like, it helps me run fast. And that's what she's doing. She turned on beast mode, and she's hitting her wrist. I'm like, stop growling at people. She goes, but I'm on beast mode. All right? It's like she couldn't see the two apart from one another. She's really funny to watch and majors on the playing but doesn't really understand the game. In fact, there's a lot of times that she practices things um, that she'll never do in a soccer game because they're illegal. And she'll practice them in the front yard over and over and over again and then be disappointed when she doesn't get to do that in a game. And it's, it's, it's funny to me, but it's like you're working really hard at the wrong thing, you know, and, she's, and we can be really good at that. You know, there's an expression that people use called, are you climbing the right ladder? You're putting a lot of effort and a lot of energy. Are you putting it towards the right things? Companies will spend thousands of dollars 
millions of dollars, some of them, figuring out, hey, we've gotten really good at our processes and the things that we're doing, but am I doing the right thing? Students, some of you are asking that question right now as you're starting to get into your major a bit. You're putting tons of energy and tons of time into this, but you're going, is this the right thing for me? Am I climbing the right ladder? And you wonder, like, but is this the job I want? Some of us in dating relationships. You're, you're getting to a point where your dating relationship is supposed to be so serious that now it's starting to cause sacrifice of, of your life. There's things that need to change for you to take the next step. And you're asking your question, like, am I in the right relationship? Am I climbing the right ladder? And all these questions are really important. But that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're talking about climbing the wrong ladder. Because the most devastating thing I think we could have The most devastating ladder that we can climb, the wrong ladder we could climb, is getting in a relationship with God and understanding who he is. See, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Mike. It's not his name, Mike. And Mike climbed the wrong ladder for a long time about what it looked like to be in relationship with God. Mike would wake up and go to Mass daily. He would pray regularly. He would serve regularly. He would serve the homeless he would, he, would go to, he would go to Bible study, he would read, he would read his Bible, he would, he would spend time around Christians and other Christians doing Christian things, he would serve in his community, he even led and stuff, he knew all the right answers, and he knew all the things that he should be doing, but every night Mike would go to bed and he would pray a prayer to say, God, did I do enough today to make you happy to be in right relationship with you? Did I pray enough? Did I work hard enough? Was I, was I generous enough? And for years, Mike went this way. And he's got filled with, just consumed with guilt. He was consumed with anxiety and worry because he's always wondered, did I do enough in order to be in right relation with God? See, some of you guys are like Mike. If I ask you the question, what does it look like for you to be in right relationship? You'll start listing out all the things you do. And you'll wonder, is that going to be enough? And you're racked with anxiety and guilt, and you're wondering, oh, my gosh. And you just kind of put it aside because it's better not to think about it than to be stuck in that anxiety and guilt. So you just go do other things. You numb out, whatever. Some of you look at that, and you look at people like Mike because you look at Mike and be like, that guy is certainly going to heaven. Look at all the stuff he does for the church. Look how involved he is. Look how moral he is. And you think, I could never be like Mike, so I'm not even going to try. Because what Christianity is about is about doing and being a better person. If that's you, you're in the right place this morning. God actually placed you here. In fact, before, if you're new here, if you stepped foot in this room, we prayed for you before you even stepped in this room. We loved you before you even came here. And I believe God has a message for you this morning to show you that you're on the wrong ladder and to show you what the right ladder is so that you can walk into a fulfilling relationship with God. Because the reality about relationship with God and salvation has nothing to do with what we've done, but it's everything to do with what Jesus has done. Amen. Amen, church? Has everything to do with him. Come on, that's right. It has nothing to do with us. In fact, we're going to open up the book of Galatians, and we're going to be there for a long time. If you're new to Mercy Hill Church, this is how we, how we do church. We open up a book, and we read verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We teach the Bible. We want you to know the Bible and understand who, what it means to have a relationship with God and walk faithfully with him. And so we work through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you're here at Mercy Church, you're going to have an opportunity to learn what God's, what God's word says and live in obedience to it. But let's pray before we get into Galatians. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to make much of you. Thank you for a chance to worship you. 
uh, to praise you. Thank you for the, the baptisms we're going to see. Thank you for the opportunity that you've written us the word so we could have clarity about what it is to have right relationship with you, Lord. And I pray for those that are climbing up the wrong ladder this morning. They've been doing it for years, or they even just thought that ladder isn't even worth climbing. I'm not even worried about that. That they would understand what it means to truly have a relationship with Jesus. And so in this moment, God, transform our hearts, remove all the distractions from our life, all the things that are stopping us from hearing you clearly, and let us focus in what your word has, because I believe you have transformation for us this morning. I believe the word has power and can transform and change our hearts and minds and lives. So do that. Have your way with us this morning. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. Amen. Amen. Okay. Open up to Galatians 1. We're going to quickly see who the audience is because context matters when you read the Bible. And we're going to see the message that he has from very quickly within four verses. Paul says this. He goes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the church of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God the God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What an introduction to a letter. Usually I start with, dear Tim, you know. But Paul's got a bit more to say, and there's a reason for that. And I don't always write Tim, even though I love Tim. You know, he's our salt director. He's an amazing guy. If you're a college student, get to know Tim. All right? All right. <laughs> We'll get him one one day, all right? So, uh, but Paul starts out this letter that he's writing to the church of Galatia, all right? It's a group of believers, and he's writing to them because they're confused. They're climbing the wrong ladder, but he wants to clearly explain to them something very central to following Jesus, and here it is. Write this down. The gospel is our only hope. The gospel is our only hope. In fact, there's three facts that we got to understand about the, the gospel that Paul talks about in verse 4, 3 and 4. Here's the first truth, all right? The gospel saves us, period. The gospel is our only hope. The gospel saves us. Very simple sentence right there. If you look at 3 and 4, read it again to yourself. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Focus in on 4. We got it up here for you. And it says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See, what verse 4 tells us is this, is that the gospel begins with a simple truth, that sin has caused separation between us and God. That sin has caused separation. You may not be familiar with that word sin, but what sin is, is disobeying God's laws. That God is the creator, and he is the king of the universe, and he has created laws for his people to live by, and none of us live up to them. And if you don't know what sin is, like lying, that's sinning, okay? Uh, When we cheat, that's sinning. When we lust, that's sin. When we covet... That's sin. And if you're new to church, you're like, why does God of the universe care if I lie to my brother? Why does the God of the universe care if I cheat on my spouse? Why does God of the universe care if I look at things I'm not supposed to look at? Like, why does that even matter? This is why God cares, because God loves his creation, and sin destroys his creation. Let me say it again. God loves his creation, and sin destroys his creation. Sin is not neutral, it's evil. When Paul says we live in this present evil age, he's not, being, he's not exaggerating anything. See, humanity's sin has caused this evil age that we live in. And now let me be clear, 
The things that you that are bad that have happened to you have not happened to you because you have sinned. But all of humanity, the sin that we've created, we have created the world that we live in, which is absolutely evil and broken and in need of salvation and need of saving. And because we sin, evil exists in the world. Like, give me an example. Because there is extreme lust, out-of-control lust in our world, child trafficking is a thing in our world. Because there is coveting, theft happens in our world. Because there is out-of-control anger, racism happens in our world. Because there is selfishness, there are people that are needy in our world. The problem in our world is not politics. The problem in the world is the hearts of man, which is broken because of sin. Sin, guys, is an apex predator. It wants to destroy you. And we even see that in our daily lives. When we lie, does it not cause brokenness in our relationships? When we cheat, does it not tear apart marriages? When we lust, do we not dehumanize other people as objects? When we covet, do we not degrade what we already have and lose contentment for what we have? You know what's the worst thing about sin? Because those things are awful. But it causes us to reject the holy and good God that loves you. It tells you that there's something better than him. And it pulls you apart from him. The Bible tells us just one sin makes you guilty before God. And you may be like, that sounds tough and harsh of God. But we forget how corrosive and evil sin is. Let me explain it like this to you. If I gave you a bottle of water, you'd probably drink it. But if I said there is one gram of arsenic in that water, you would be a fool to drink it. You'd be like, no way I'm not drinking that. And by the way, there's no arsenic in any of the drinks we're giving afterwards. <laughs> but you'd be a fool to drink it. You'd be like, no way. I'd be like, what, dude? There's like 100 billion drops of water, there's like one drop of arsenic. Like the, the, the water, ratio, the arsenic ratio is so high, you'll be okay. But that one thing makes it deadly to you. That's how evil sin is. It makes it so deadly to you, it corrupts the entirety of it. I know you're like, oh, Arnie, I'm glad I woke up this morning. You're talking about sin for 10 minutes. But the good news isn't good unless we come face to face with the bad. We have to have a, a right reality of where we are. And the good news, guys, is so good because the bad news is so bad that only a good God could change it. Here's truth number two that we see. God is the one that saves us. Look back at verse three and four. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Now, Mercy Hill Church, did it say you deliver yourself through your own works and good deeds? It says we're delivered by the will of the Father and the working of God. How amazing is that? How good is that? Can we say amen to that? 
See that God saw your mess and he saw mine, and he didn't run in the other direction. He ran towards us. He was like those firefighters on 9-11. He was going up the stairs when everybody else was coming down. He's running into the, to your house that's burning apart because of sin, but he, guess what? He can fix it. He can change it. See, the root of the desire of our salvation starts and ends with God. How good is our God? How loving is our God that when he sees you, he didn't run in the other direction. And listen to me, guys. There are some things that you've done in your life you don't want anybody else to know. And you don't want anybody else to know because you're afraid that they're going to judge you and never want to see you again. But God's already seen it. He's seen all of it. And he's not running away from you. He's running to you. He's running after you. See, the pursuit of God, the pleasure that God takes place, takes in us, is not our pursuit of him, but his pursuit of us. That when God saw our mess, he came to save us, to transform us, to change us. That's good news. That's the gospel. Here's truth number three. Peace with God is possible because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The will of the Father was to send out Jesus to accomplish salvation for us. Jesus came here and was 100% God, and he was 100% man, and he gave himself to, for us. And as 100% God, we're like, what do you mean he's 100% God, 100% man? Let me clarify what that means. That as God, he lived as a man. He laid aside his divine privilege, and he lived a perfect life pleasing to God. He perfectly kept the law of God. That means he never sinned. Not only did he never sin, he always did the right things. Y'all, I never always do the right things. Even with the people I love the most, even with my kids, I never always do the right things. We went to the Bengals game. I was trying to get my kid out of that game so quick because I knew I had an early morning. And I was like, it's preseason. It doesn't mean anything. He's like having so much fun. I'm like, let's go. That ain't the right thing. I never do the right thing. I hardly do the right thing. And Jesus did it always. He lived the life we were meant to live. And what scripture tells us is that he was propitiation for our sins. You're like, Ernie, it's a big word. What does that mean? It means he swapped places with us. That he took on your rap sheet and you got his rap sheet. See, what happened at the cross was that God the Father punished all of humanity's sins in the person of Jesus as if he committed those sins. And then he accredited it to those who say Jesus is the Son of God, that he actually is who he is, and they died for sins, he credited the righteousness of Christ to those people. That we would be righteous and right and have peace with God through the grace and mercy of God because it won't, our sin won't be punished in us, but punished in the person of Jesus. And we can have salvation because of that. Amen? Amen. How good is our God? Amen? Amen? And God created peace for us. Now, I want you to look back at three again. Paul calls Jesus a name that you've never called him before in your life, I'll bet you. He looks at Jesus, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. I bet you you've never prayed to God that way. You'll call him Jesus, you'll call him the Christ, you'll call him my Lord. I was wondering, like, why would Paul say that? Well, if you know the history of the Galatians, this is really where we get into our text and really start getting into the story of, of the Galatians, that they begin to missee God for who he really was, to misunderstand who Jesus really was. And Paul wanted to make it very clear that this is who Jesus is. That word Lord right there, it doesn't mean king of a country. It means Lord of the universe, king of the universe, commander of the universe. That title Christ isn't his last name, but it means Messiah, one that would save. 
See, many of us have a bad view of Jesus because we see him as weak. As we see him, maybe that, that we look at him, he's like, hey, he's the genie that I go to and pray to when I want to get an A on my test, or I want to get that promotion, or I want, this, or I want that, that thing to go through so I can get the house. He's the guy, or he's the guidance counselor that I go to when things are hard and when things are good, I don't ever go to him anymore. Jesus doesn't want to just be your guidance counselor. He wants to be there in your hardest moments. He does want to give you great things, but he doesn't want you just to come when you give him great things, all right? And, and he's definitely not, he is gentle, but he is not weak. What Jesus is, is the king of the universe, the God of all creation. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the risen lamb who will, be, who will defeat death, and he is the lion of Judah who will redeem his people. He's the king of the universe. Guys, is Jesus that to you? Perhaps you struggle with wanting to add something to the gospel because you've forgotten who Jesus is and that he is completely sufficient for your salvation. Because you're looking at me and saying, Ernie, you don't know what I did last night. That's not for me. You don't know what I did last week. That's not for me. It is for you. Because the Lion of Judah says it is. The Lord Jesus Christ says it is. And his word and his deeds are greater than any you will ever be to accomplish in your life. Because he's king. So he says, you are the Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the commander, savior, Messiah that has come here to redeem his people. And then Paul continues on because he wants them to know that. Because look at what he says in 6. He says, I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if... Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said, because so now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So you see some sharp words from Paul right here. And typically he would start off his letters with a praise about how great these people are doing. But that's not what he starts it out with. He starts out with, what are you guys doing? Why would you do this? He starts out by saying this statement we need to hear right now. Don't leave your only hope. You may be like, dang, Paul, you're being pretty rough. You're being pretty mean. No, he's being very loving. Because he sees people that he loves and cares, and they are walking away from the only they hope they have in Christ and chasing after something else, and he is begging them. He is yelling at them, please don't do that. Don't go there. And the background that Paul's talking about right here is that there's a group of people called the Judaizers that showed up. And they started adding to the gospel. Galatia was full of all Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish followers of Christ. And these Judaizers were saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God. But it's not Jesus isn't sufficient enough. The gospel isn't enough. You, you, need to, you also need to obey the Old Testament laws, all of them. You need to become Jewish. That was contextually what they were doing. We see this over and over and over again in our societies. People say, you know what? Yeah, it's Jesus plus good works. It's Jesus plus tongues. It's Jesus plus a special baptism or a special thing. It's Jesus plus the approval of the priest. 
It's Jesus plus whatever the Pope says. And Paul is sitting here saying, if, even if an angel shows up and gives you a different gospel than the one we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, the gospel of Christ, let him be accursed. Why? Because they're leading you to your doom. They're leading you away from your only hope. And they don't have life. They claim to have it, but they don't have it. And the big fallout that these Judaizers were leading these Christians to is something that many of us fall into, legalism. You ever heard the word? We all misuse it, I promise you. So I want to spend a minute to find legalism. Then the simplest definition of legalism is this, adding to the work of the gospel of salvation. Adding to the work of the gospel of sal- for salvation. And you can spot it in three ways that I think you can see. First is this. When we start living out a legalistic life, we're working. The, one of the things you'll see is you'll work in your own power. See, we can't forget that the Judaizers, they were preaching Christ, but they were saying, hey, you got to bring your own works to the table. And when we work to our own power. This is what it looks like actually in a Christian's life is that you believe salvation was accomplished by the work of Christ, but now it's up to you to accomplish the Christian life. Not by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, but it's up to you to be a better person. It's up to you to be a better Christian, whatever that means. I still haven't found that in the Bible, how to be a better Christian. I see how to be a disciple. I don't see that one. The second way you can spot is this, working according to your own rules. See, what legalism does is it says, hey, we have to create other rules. We have to add to the work of God. You're not going to see the approval of a priest for you to go to get to heaven. You're not going to see it in the Bible. You're not going to see, like, you got to speak in tongues or have this special gift or second baptism or whatever it is. You're not going to see any of those things in the Bible. But what legalists will do is they'll add things to the Bible, add things to the commands of God and say, you got to do this too. Thirdly, what it looks like is working to earn God's favor. That a legalist will have this view that I, when I do good, God is happy with me. And when I do bad, he's not happy with me. Guys, God is already completely pleased with you because of the work of Jesus. That when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees who he's made you to be. And he sees who Christ was for you on your behalf and is completely pleased with you. You don't have to wake up, is God happy with me? If you're a son and daughter of the king, if you know Jesus Christ, he's pleased with you because he's pleased with his son. But when we work to earn God's favor, it looks like this, like, man, I got to do, well, if I do this, then maybe God will give me this. You know, if I, go to, if I go to Bible study, then maybe God will bring about that spouse that I really want. Maybe he'll bring about the job. Maybe, he'll, maybe my kids will, 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 will do good in school and get into a good college, and he'll give me this favor. Like, God doesn't, he doesn't work on exchange. He's not holding anything back. He's already given his son. He'll give it all. Now, let me say a few things about what legalism is not, because we get caught up in that. Legalism is not being disciplined or setting boundaries. That's being wise. I'll often sit down with guys that have girlfriends and stuff like that, and I'll talk about, hey, did you set any boundaries with your girlfriend? 
And they're like, oh, we just want to be spirit-led. Like, we don't want to be legalistic about it. I'm like, no, you're being foolish. It's probably a good thing to say if you want to stay pure in your, mar- in your relationship. It's probably say, we probably shouldn't lay down and watch a show. Probably shouldn't be a certain time that I'm leaving the house. That's wise. Martin Luther said this. He said, if your head's made of butter, don't stand next to the fire. Setting boundaries and having spiritual discipline is just that. It's just being wise. It's not legalistic. Here's another thing that's not legalism that we love to call legalism. Accountability. When your brother or sister in Christ sees you walking in a way that is not consistent with who you are and says, hey, man, these things I'm seeing in your life, it, like, what are you doing? That's not him being judgmental and legal. That's actually him really loving you. You know what the Bible says? It says, how profuse are the, are the kisses of a friend, how faithful are the wounds, excuse me, how faithful are the wounds of a friend, how profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You know how hard it is for them to approach you about that? You know how much easier it would be to just let it slide? You know how much they got to love you to come up to you and say that to you? To confront you on something like that? That is a deep love. That is a sacrificial love they have for you. That is a friend worth keeping around. They're not legalistic. That's accountability. Here's another one. It's not legalistic to have a high bar for leaders in the church. The scriptures are very clear. For you guys, the higher you step up in leadership, the higher bar of accountability and it needs to be in your life. The higher bar of above reproach needs to be there because you're now responsible for others. In fact, our elders, we're an elder-led church. We fully believe this, that we'll give an account for you, the members of our church, one day before God and how we led you. It's a humongous responsibility that we don't take lightly, but we take seriously. And so whenever we affirm anyone as an elder in our church, we want to make sure that there's someone that, some, that you would want to be like one day in Christ. And that's not legalism. That's leadership. So when you see those things, those other things, that's legalism. But when you see these things I just talked about, that's faithfully following Jesus. Legalism is about adding to your salvation. It's Jesus plus. Now, Paul ends in verse 8 and 9 and 10. Actually, he ends in 10. He says this. For am I now seeking to approve the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What Paul is saying as he's being judged at this moment because people are like, well, maybe Paul's wrong and these Judaizers are right. He's saying, if you want to know if somebody is really leading you in the right direction, see who they're trying to appease. Is it their crowd or is it their Lord? We talked about sin for 15 minutes, guys, at our one-year celebration. We're not trying to please you. We're trying to please God here. And we're trying to beckon you to please God. Not so that you would get favor, 
but that you would seek to serve the Lord because what he has in plan for you is better than any other plan you could ever have in your life. See, some of you guys, maybe this morning you realize you've been climbing the wrong ladder, that you've been a legalist, that you've been a person that sought favor from God from what you did, that tried to live out the Christian life in your own power. that tried to add to God's rules so you could say you earned your salvation, that you would answer the question, I just need to go to church a little bit more. I just need to read my Bible a little bit more, and then God would be pleased with me. At this moment, this is the moment right now where you can throw all that aside and say the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough in my life. Amen? If that's you, we'd love to talk to you. And all it takes is confessing to God to what you believe is true. It can go in a prayer like this. It just says, God, I believe that you are, that Jesus is the son of God, that I'm, I've broken his law and I can't earn it, but I believe you died for my sins, so I just devote my life to you. You're the son of God. I want to follow you. And there's nothing special about that prayer. It's not a hocus pocus thing. It's just a confession of what's true. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, confess in your heart, Confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart about who God is. And that's where salvation comes from, is that we truly trust God. I'm going to pray, and we're going to press in. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to make much of you. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you're doing um, in our church. Uh, thank you for the pictures of salvation we're going to see. Uh, we are so excited to celebrate with these new believers their new faith in Jesus Christ. God, we know this doesn't save them. It's just an outward picture to them about an inward reality that's happened. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.